Welcome to the Soul Pod. I'm your host, Gary Lewis. And the Soul Pod is a podcast series where I interview people who uh, come from all different walks of life who I think share really interesting insights um, from their areas of expertise. And hopefully they'll provide you with content that uh, can help you live a more actualized, authentic, uh, happy, mindful, purpose-driven life. Um, I actually start out the episode series with uh, my former therapist, Dr. Ed Ragsdale. It seemed only fitting to start with Ed because he's had such an impactful uh, experience on my life. And I just think Ed has so much to share with the world. And I'm so happy to, to give him a voice in this way. Um, I really loved my conversation with Ed, and I hope you'll love it too. Ed, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So what I'm thinking is I'd like to start out with kind of explaining how I got connected to you in the first place, and then um, just kind of walk people through what my process was and sort of how I arrived at, at just finding you. And then from there, we could get into your work and, and obviously we'll want to know a bit about uh, your, your personal bio and just help the viewer and the listeners get to know who you are. So uh, I'll start out by saying that. Uh, so it was about 10 years ago, I think I was looking through our emails the first time I connected with you and it was 2011, I think the first email that I sent to you. So um, about yeah, almost 10 years now. And I was in a, a challenging spot at that time. I was in a bit of a, um, I call it a bit of a dark period. And I was struggling for a while at that point. And I knew that I, I needed to talk to somebody. And I had probably known that for a couple of years, but I actually waited to pull the trigger on it for a while. Um, and so when I finally started to look for a therapist, there were certain on paper criteria I was looking for. And I think I, I may have spoken with something like five, four or five therapists uh, that upon speaking with them, they had the on paper credentials and, you know, all the things I was, I thought I was looking for. Uh, but upon speaking with them, I just, it just didn't click. And I remember I had a few conversations. Um, one gentleman just came off to me as sort of arrogant and pretentious and it turned me off, even though he had all these great credentials and he had been recommended by people that I knew who had, who were going through similar issues. And then I spoke to somebody else who uh, also equally highly recommended, um, just felt cold and distant and just didn't feel like the right fit. And, um, I knew that I had to keep looking. I knew that I didn't want to, I didn't want to be turned off by the idea of finding a therapist at this point, simply because I had encountered, um, a few people who just didn't resonate with me. And then eventually I found Ed and, um, Ed's background matched up with what I was looking to resolve. And what was really important to me too, was that Ed had a connection to Buddhism. And I learned that because I stumbled across a chapter he had written in a book uh, entitled Value and Meaning in Gestalt Psychology and Mahayana Buddhism. And when I read that chapter and I had looked at, and I loved what I had read and, and the way he Ed drew parallels between Gestalt and, uh, and Mahayana Buddhism. And we can get into that later on because it, it'll actually inform Ed's, I think it's probably informed your, your forthcoming book. Um, it really spoke to me and it meant that I was going to, you know, meet somebody who not only had a Western psychological background that was aligned with the issues I was encountering, but also brought, uh, an awareness of Buddhist values that I, that I know that I needed. I actually had to have that sort of integration because Buddhism in many ways, ever since I've been introduced to it 20 years ago myself, I've always felt deeply connected to, to the values that Buddhism sort of, uh, I draw upon Buddhist teachings to, to, create my values and my, my, my value system. So um, I met with Ed and I was pleasantly surprised. I, I met with somebody who I found to be experienced, um, non-judgmental, thoughtful, compassionate, and uh, just an all around good person. And so I went on to work with Ed over the course of, I think a few years, it was definitely, I'd say two, three or four years now, probably from the 2011 period to 20. 13 and 2014. And then over throughout the years, we've remained in touch, of course. And Ed's helped me through many a crisis. Uh, before, while we were preparing for this podcast, Ed was also getting phone calls from, from patients and there was things going on there and he had to deal with. And it reminded me of 
and this is the weekend that we're, we're shooting this, it reminded me of uh, a particular crisis in my lifetime when I was going through a hard breakup. And I called Ed, I don't know if Ed, you remember this, but I was calling him at one in the morning. I was calling him every night. We were on the phone for hours. And honestly, it was, I didn't know that, I didn't think I was going to get through that period. I remember thinking, I don't know how I get through this. I had such a, such a reaction to the breakup that I was, I was really distraught. And it was Ed's calming voice and his reassuring, um, you know, just knowing who I was and knowing how to reach out to me in the way that was unique to my situation, it really allowed me to feel comforted. And I remember one day I kind of just snapped. I broke in a good way after I had taken some advice from you the night before. And it led to a brief period of euphoria, which was quickly kind of <laughs> came and went, but it was what got me through a really challenging period. And so I know you, I mean, it must be amazing to walk people through those types of crises and to do it on a regular basis and just the personal, I don't know, but just the personal value you must get from understanding that you're helping somebody and seeing someone that you're helping somebody in that type of a situation. What kind of, what does that, what does that feel like just out of curiosity? Wow. Um, well, I think I've been really fortunate um, in a really important area in my life. I've, I've, found I'm doing what I need to be doing, I think. I just, I really love what I do. Um, and it's just really kind of wonderful consistently to be able to sit down um, and talk with people about the most important stuff in their lives. And, you know, and our job together is to, is to unpack that and to help them to get to know themselves just better and better. And uh, I mean, most folks who come for therapy, um, pretty much everybody feels sort of divided, cut off from themselves. And, and so I guess it's sort of nice also, I've, while, they're, while they're getting to know me, hopefully I'm helping them to get to know themselves, where you just, where in the process, you're just becoming, I mean, it, it would be nice to think you're becoming more and more whole with, with oneself. And, um, and I just really enjoy that. I just really like to talk with people about what matters most. So the concept of getting whole with oneself, I should probably, I probably should have stated this at the outset, but the whole concept of this podcast, the soul pod, uh, the way I, the way I conceived of it was to have guests like yourself um, and other experts and other people who are going through experiences where that, that might have value for others to draw upon, to be able to really um, provide, whether it be, you know, insight, whether it be tips or strategies, but provide content that folks can uh, find a way to connect up with their authentic selves, find a way to really get connected with their true their true essence. And I think for me, therapy was sort of a, um, a foundational element of that. I mean, I've, I had always in the pr prior to therapy, when I first discovered Buddhism, Buddhist meditation practices and Buddhist practices um, that I was using at the time allowed me to have an awareness of self that I, I had never had before in my life. But over time, um, certain conditions basically obscured a lot of the clarity that I felt like I had earlier in my life when I was engaged in those practices. And so um, I, f I feel like therapy oftentimes can get a bad rap in a way that, you know, people will, for example, and this is something I always wanted to ask you, when, when people approach me and they might seek advice or counsel, and a lot of folks around me know I'm constantly working on myself. So I tend to be a target for these types of questions, whether it be from friends or family. And I'm, and I'm, I'm totally thrilled that people, you know, value my opinion in that way, but I might suggest therapy for certain folks. And very often I'll hear something like, well, you know, yeah, I tried therapy. It didn't work for me. I, you know, I, I went to some guy or some woman and, you know, they barely listened to me or, or it was cold or just, you know, I couldn't do it. And, and that was it as if it were a one shot deal where they went to one practitioner and they decided wholesale that therapy wasn't of value. Do you, when someone's coming to you, are you ever dealing with folks who are resistant to the idea of therapy? And that's question A. Question B is, 
do you think therapy is for everybody? Can everybody benefit from psychotherapy? Hmm. Let's see here. I've already forgotten the first question. First question is how often, how often do you deal with folks who come into therapy still, still resistant and not, not necessarily. Yeah. They've committed to showing up at your door and they're sitting in front of you. Well, they've, they've already kind of tilted to the side of getting themselves. They, they've made the appointment and they've shown up for the appointment. And, um, so, of course, then, I mean, people are talking about the idea of getting whole. People are often divided. They're often in conflict. So there's a part of them, a part of them that can get it together to, to show up. But then once they've shown up, sometimes they do want to unpack all the reasons they feel maybe they don't want or need to be there, right? And, um, and it really is their call. I mean, and sometimes you just have to, I mean, it helps for them to remember that there, there was something that they were struggling with in their lives that gave them, that motivated them to, you know, find somebody like me and pay somebody like me a bit. Um, and so there's some reason that, they, that they, they've gotten this far. And I mean, sometimes you, you get in the situation and then you're dealing with this new unfamiliar situation where, where just like I was saying before, you're, you're invited to talk about stuff that matters the most to you, that's sort of central to your being. And as much as you want and need to maybe get that off your chest and whatnot, it can be really spooky for a lot of people to, to get real. They're just not, I mean, they're maybe used to talking to themselves about some of this deep stuff, but they're not used to sharing it with another person and particularly a stranger. Um, but I, you know, I, I guess I do sort of, I guess I just sort of, if I need to, I feel as though I, I kind of just sort of remind them, I mean, what are you here for? What are you seeking for yourself? Um, and sort of help them to reconnect with that and, and see what happens. Um, as for, I mean, it's hard to say whether um, I think therapy is for everyone. I mean, some, some people are just so um, hardened against the idea. Um, and I mean, one of the scripts, you, you just described one script. Well, I tried it and this guy, you know, or this person just really didn't, 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 I know as much as he did or something like that. I mean, one of the other things is, oh, I am my own therapist, right? And of course, <laughs> I mean, sometimes you, you look at where the person is in their lives and, or where, where they feel they are in their lives. And <laughs> you could say, well, wow, I mean, um, I mean, how is that going? Um, but people can be really, it's, it's, it can be, I mean, the resistance that people have often to being open with a therapist is the same resistance they have to, um, to really knowing themselves more deeply. So, um, so it gets projected onto me, but I think a lot of the resistance that people experience um, in relating to a, a therapist, a, a, you know, a brand new person to share their life with is the, the kind of the homegrown fear they already have about connecting with ourselves. And it's kind of amazing because you would think of all the people in the world who is sort of on to us and who we don't need to hide from or where there's no secrets from. It would be ourselves, right? I mean, we're kind of, like it or not, we're stuck with ourselves 24 and 7. <laughs> but it would seem as though the way that we manage that is to sort of divide divide up from ourselves. And, um, and some of that is just getting through really hard times, you know, particularly, I mean, I'll, probably most folks who come, who decide they need psychotherapeutic help, uh, most of them have tended to have 
we could say a bumpy childhood uh, and maybe experiences that would be short of what uh, attachment theory would describe as uh, secure attachment, like secure and safe relationships with the, you know, the most important people in their lives. Can we unpack just for a minute there? I want to, so for folks who are not familiar with secure attachment, this is something that fascinated me when I first learned about it. And I first learned about um, the particular, can you discuss a bit the years in our lives that are the most relevant or the, the time period where we're most formative, where secure attachment uh, has its greatest effect or where the greatest effect can, can occur? And what about, what qualities uh, are we talking about when we talk about secure attachment? What exactly are we discussing? Well, I mean, you could almost say that the the importance of um, early experience would be in um, in direct proportion to uh, how young you are. I mean, probably the the younger you are in your life, the the more uh, affected you may be by the experience that you're, you're in the midst of. I mean, it, and, and a lot of that experience, there's, I mean, this is a lot of this could happen even before you have a language to, to categorize a lot of the experience. And, and, uh, there's often can be no real memory for, uh, at least no cognitive memory um, there can be more emotional memory and, and experience, um, you know, just a, a sensation that, that relate to one's past that bubble up in one's present, but you don't have that reference to know where it's coming from. So it's like it, whatever those feelings are that, are that are being evoked by the past, they just sort of blend in with what you're experiencing in, in the present. And you don't realize that you're reacting to the present uh, in a in a in a manner that's consistent sometimes with the with what the experience that you had in the past. And so, I mean, I I think about different ways of this is one of my little internal games I play with myself. Different ways of sort of boiling down what goes on in like successful psychotherapy and it needn't, we needn't, needn't be particularly in the context of psychotherapy, just in the sense of just having experiences where you feel as though you're growing, you're waking up, you're, you're getting more whole um, with, with, within yourself. And, oh yeah, I just, I, uh, I was remembering my, one of the, one of the little ways that I try to answer that question is it's like, um, I think there was actually a movie with this title with Emilio Estevez, but uh, that was then and this is now. You know, to, to the more we're able to meet our current experience and be able to, to kind of separate out um, stuff from, you know, the influence of our past experience on the present, the more we can separate out the past from the present, the better off we're going to be, where... And, and I think that's one of the big things that does go on in psychotherapy when it works. Um, one originally is there's sort of, I mean, a lot of the old stuff, like old baggage, um, old reactive patterns, sort of unconscious ways of being that you don't even, you don't even realize you're caught up in. Um, but they're, Maybe they work to help you to survive some of those earlier earlier years. Um, and but what I mean that's why the twenties can be a really bumpy time for folks because um, you know stuff that they may have we may have sort of needed just instinctually instinctively to, to sort of manage our lives when we're uh, growing up in our family of origin. It, it may work there, but it, oftentimes it doesn't work nearly so well out in the in the wider world. And we realize we've got all these baggage, we have all these sort of blind spots and whatnot. And so, um, oftentimes therapy with younger folks when they're any in, in their twenties is um, is about particularly about that kind of thing. But of course, it's also about that kind of thing in your fifties and sixties and and. I mean, it never stops. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing kind of a thing. Um, 
the the unknowns that we are challenged to 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 meet and come to terms with and we're you know we're sort of we're moving forward in time so you don't you don't really know what's around the next corner and you're you you know hopefully you you know it's better if you can meet that with an open heart but that whole process of becoming more present you know in the unfolding present as you as it becomes you know the you know your future what um there's a parallel process in that um, alongside the outer unknown of what, you know, tomorrow will bring or something, there's this inner unknown that you're, you're kind of, you're, you're, um, you're meeting yourself in a brand. You're seeing how you respond in a particular situation. So it's, I don't know if I'm saying this too well right now, but there's a, it's, it's kind of to be fully present in the world it seems like you're continuing to to get to know yourself better and sort of wake wake up more and more and and again i guess one of the ways of looking at that process of waking up is being able to make that distinction between um you know the getting back to the that was then and this is now and and the idea is to be able to meet the present completely open to it um, which means being open to your past. I mean, having, I mean, to make peace with whatever that past was. I mean, and that's a, that's a tall order. I can't say that I have arrived at anything like that, but I think it's a, um, I think it's a worthy challenge. What's your current, based on your training, based on what you're working on now, uh, in particular, what you're writing, how do you view what we're experiencing now as a society. How do you view the, the current state of affairs of civil unrest? How do you intellectualize it? And then, um, and then how, what would you say to somebody who doesn't know how to feel in light of the fact that everything feels so charged and polarized now? Drawing upon your, your work, how would you, what advice do you give people when they come to you and say, Ed, I feel so you know, everything is so charged and, um, I feel like I'm just in a current and, you know, I, uh, I, I'm also charged as a result and I'm reactive. Uh, um, wh- what do you say to somebody that, that understands that they're, um, being affected by polarization in society and, and how do you draw upon your work to inform that? Well, it is, I, I'm obviously I'm, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult to unpack this all um, in, in very short digestible um, concepts, but um, I mean, this to me does seem like an age that, that humanity has never experienced the likes of. Um, and it, I think it has everything to do with um, we were, I was talking earlier about absolutism. Um, and can you define absolutism for those who don't know? Just a two sentence definition. Well, and absolutism is something that seems kind of almost instinctual in human experience, um, and um, it turns out that. There's there's a multitude of absolutisms out there. Different cult, even within a family, there'll be particular a sense of this is this is how things are. This is what's true. Uh, you get outside that family, in another family, there's a whole different view. So there's this this enculturation of beliefs and and valuations that you pretty much take for granted as implicit truths, and they tend to clash with one another. Um, and some people, and it's sort of an academic tradition that from which relativism and a, and a philosophical tradition from which relativism emerges that says, um, well, you know, it, all these absolutist, you know, not all these different absolute systems can be true if they conflict with one another. So there must be relativism. Um, Gestalt comes around, comes along with an idea of relational determination. Um, it's very, very similar to 
what the Buddhists came up with, with their uh, theories of uh, interdependent origination, uh, dependent arising, absence of inherent existence. This shunyata is a sort of a basic concept in, in Mahayana Buddhism, um, that, that things don't have an, ex- uh, an inherent meaning or existence. Uh, they exist as a function of causes and conditions. They exist as a function of the relation of their internal parts. They exist as a function of the relation of, of, of that entity to, to other entities out there, out there in the world. But the, but the problem is we, we, we fail to perceive the, the relations that give rise to, it, to our experience. Um, and, and so we're, I mean, I mean, this, we can finally now get back to some of the conflict that we're experiencing. Um, it's like what we're experiencing right now is a kind of a, um, moral absolutism, um, is really showing its age. Um, in terms of, of the way that we relate to other societies, we, you used to be able to, to extern whatever whatever you couldn't whatever wouldn't fit comfortably into one's own vision of, of truth and goodness. One would one could sort of push off to the side and sort of you know compartmentalize. And depth psychology helps us to see that what we sort of disown. What we, what we don't have an imagination for in our own experience of in our own worlds and our own lives tends to get represented elsewhere. And basically it tends to get externalized or, or, or projected and we could say often scapegoated. So, so the darkness that we have trouble um, really coming to terms with in ourselves um, will tend to get represented in others. So, so, um, America, for example, has has tended to have people or groups, whatnot, that it could feel superior to. I mean, of course, there's a sense of of exceptionalism that's woven into American experience from the very get go, and the whole concept of manifest destiny, where you feel entitled to uh, to essentially wipe out uh, the indigenous population or you know, put them on reservations, those who survive. And, and you can, you know, and still sort of glowing in your own sense of self-virtue. Um, well, that the, the wrong that you can't recognize in yourself is located elsewhere. And we could get away with those kind of projections. I mean, you could get away with blaming the Russians or, and there's plenty of people that, to blame. I mean, we could very easily find a, I mean, grotesque fault in, um, in Nazi Germany. Um, but that's, that's not a replacement for recognizing our own darkness within ourselves and coming to terms with it. And so basically one of the things that's going on in the world right now is that the world has become so interconnected and the level of, of interdependence is so great. Um, we've run out of, you know, in, in a sense, we've run out of, of, um, of scapegoats. We've run out of folks onto whom we can project what we, what we can't really accept in ourselves. And, and the other thing that's gone on with that is that one gets sort of inflated around one's own sense of virtue and, and Lord knows America is probably a poster child for that sense of inflation and a sense of sort of moral superiority. Well, I mean, maybe there are sort of morally superior uh, societies, but the societies that are morally superior are those that are able to acknowledge their, their, their huge imperfection. Um, and so when you, when you have trouble recognizing that you're still a work in progress when it comes to um, sort of awakening your beliefs and your values. If, if you, um, if, if you're, if you're imagining that you've already arrived at the fundamental truth, boy, are you turning a blind eye to, to a lot of, of wrong in your own society. So, 
So that's caught up with America. And I think it's sort of, I mean, I, I don't think it's just, it's not simply America. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that a very similar dynamic is unfolding in mul- multiple different, um, you know, nations just across the world. And we've, I think, I think human civilization has reached a kind of a crossroads or a, um, a, a moment of truth. Um, because we're not going to be able to survive if we continue to locate the bad that we are unable to accept in ourselves, if we continue to locate it on others, and realizing that those others that we are projecting our bad onto are doing the same thing to us. And you can see that in terms of uh, relations with different civilizations, um, it's gotten so problematic in America that, that now, I mean, the very um, absolutism that sort of held together some kind of fabric of, of, of shared human, shared national experience and pride, national pride and patriotism, whatnot, I mean, that's become split apart. So, um, so we have an absolutism um, across different political um, segments. Um, I'm getting into a very spooky, I mean, an uncomfortable realm here. Um, and particularly since this, I'm supposed to be summarizing, I'm fairly probably failing horribly to summarize this, but um, this, th- the division that we're talking about right now is, is very much around um, liberal versus conservative views. Um, And so it, it sort of, I I haven't gotten into this part of, of, of the theory, Um, but it it would seem to me um, that the, first of all, that any, any, any society that is going through uh, social change, there's bound to be a leading edge to that change, and there's bound to be a, a kind of a foundation um, within that society uh, to, to be able to maintain its coherence, to be capable of having some kind of vision of change and whatnot. So there's bound to be a conservative uh, ground for any society in change, and there's bound also to be a liberal view. Um, the conservative viewpoint is very is much more so organized around a kind of an absolutism that imagines that we've have arrived upon sort of like these fundamental truths that are absolutely true. They apply across all contexts and situations um, into the infinite future. I mean, you get into, I mean, you can see this sort of playing out practically in terms of different views of, 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 of law and, you know, and, you know like Supreme Court, uh, I mean, sort of like how, how um, or do we have a revisionist or do we have a very sort of a literalistic view of how to interpret the Constitution is a perfect example of that. Um, Gestalt would say we, we have to take into account the context within which we're trying to do the right thing in order to, to see clearly what that right thing is, that, 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 um, that the, the right thing in one particular context may not be quite the same thing in, in another context. Um, but so there's a, there's a, there's a, a sort of a, a foundational edge in all societies that's going to be conservative. And there's, but there's also, a dimension that can that can sort of begin to recognize that that our our vision of truth and goodness is I mean we're a work in progress in being able to to realize that understanding and 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 that is the kind of conflict that I think is is going on um, let me just toss out one other um, I, t- I talked about my 
my background in, in Gestalt psychology, and I was saying I felt that Gestalt psychology needed depth psychology really to flesh out its own self. And there's a particular book that I found so important uh, within depth psychology by Eric uh, Neumann, N-E-U-M-A-N-N, and it's called Depth Psychology in a New Ethic. Um, he's, he's more from a, um, a Jungian background, uh, but this book that he wrote, I mean, it was, it, sort of, it was sort of amazing to me how well it lent itself to, to, to uh, being understood in terms of Gestalt views. Um, and uh, he's talking about an old ethic, the, the initial sort of absolutism of, of early societies and the need for what he calls a new ethic. Um, which recognizes the, that, you, that, that, that absolutist visions of right and wrong and good and bad, um, they, they are not sustainable. Um, Neumann's view, I think, is coming to pass right now. He, he, he talks about the, the kind of, the, the sort of the moral inflation that can go on in, in absolutist moral views in, in different societies where they feel as though they've arrived at the fundamental truth. And when, 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 you, when you settle into that attitude, the, the, the society itself, um, because it's so assumed, it's sort of taken for granted as being sort of identified with, you know, absolute virtue, it, become, it can become like a Petri dish for non-virtue, and I hate to bring up specifics like it's such, a, but it's such a, a perfect example. I mean, the Catholic Church just discovering what was going on there, and and the place where you would least expect to find evil, it's sort of the bastion of, of 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 what was thought to be like the perfection of human goodness. You find such villainy. Well. When you absolutize your your vision of goodness, and you can you you imagine that you can attach it to a particular institution or to a particular society, to anything in particular, then you're then you're you're making it very easy for that institution to um, to get so full of itself that it it becomes um, the opposite of what it uh, presumes to be. Um, there's another viewpoint, um, and this is where you, where Neumann would begin to talk about a new ethic that recognizes, that realizes, I mean, it's, I'm just realizing it's really easy to, to make more sense of this if we just bring it back to the experience of an, of an individual person, an individual, like a person coming into therapy. Um, and and there'll be the person who presents to me and says, gee, doc, I don't know, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this or that. I'm doing, all, you know, and whatever. And I just really, I mean, not everybody, but some people, a lot of folks are just really, really down on themselves. They kind of, they, there's a part of themselves that they pretty much hate. Or they just want to recoil from. They don't want to admit to. They don't want to relate to. So that becomes their evil. Um, and so they, you know, the identity that often presents to me, you know, Doc, I need some help with this problem, is, is often a part that is sort of organized around some kind of sense of virtue that gives them some emotional distance from parts of themselves that they wouldn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. That's the absolutism of, of good and evil in, a, in an individual human, human heart. Uh, I've discovered a well, and I haven't. I mean, I, I discovered a lot of interesting work that sort of that really um, sort of operationalizes that dynamic and gives people a, a, a good way of sort of recognizing it and overcoming that kind of self alienation. Um, and it's actually um, I, um, Fritz Perls, the father of Gestalt. Theory, excuse me, Gestalt therapy, which is distinct from Gestalt theory. He's one of the fathers of this. I think 
Jung had a similar take on it, but where um, you you realize that there's a there's other aspects of you that are inside of you, and it's as though they are like other people. It's like they're other personalities, and and one can relate to those other personalities within oneself in pretty much the same way one might relate to somebody, you know, another person out in the world, a person hey. You, you would typically not like and not really want to have much to do with. And so I will, uh, schema therapy is, is one of the areas that's been developed that sort of fleshes out this particular dynamic, but it's, it's really, it's very powerful and it, it, it really illustrates a lot of what goes on inside us and how we're so divided from one another and how we, how we need so much to overcome those divisions and that the way that we have a chance of overcoming those divisions is to get beyond this sort of absoluteness that we attach to the, the difference between those parts, where we kind of humanize the part that we would most scorn. And so I, I, can, I will invite folks to try to zero in on this part of themselves that they're ashamed of, that they recoil from, and to imagine that that, that, that part of themselves were another person and that we could even invite that other person into the, um, into the, into the room. Right. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask the, you know, ask them, where would you like this, um, alter ego or whatever, uh, to sit. And, and if that person, if that personality is willing, uh, that person will take a seat, you know, maybe at the other end of the sofa, for example. Um, and it's sort of interesting you ask the person where well if you if if you're if this other person this other part of you would be willing to come in where would you have that person sit and oftentimes it can be at the at the, the far the farthest corner away from my patient or client you know as they can put them sometimes they'll say oh you know maybe occasionally they'll say you know beside me but it sort of illustrates it tells you something really really uh, very clear about the, 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 the quality of the relationship between those two act, uh, parts of self. I mean, whether, whether one can feel some measure of compassion and care for this person that we don't know, this part of ourselves that we don't know what to do with, or whether one just, the best one can do is to get as far away from that, that part of ourselves as they can. Anyway, you begin to invite um, the person to begin a dialogue with this disowned aspect. And, um, and they will often sort of lay out how much they, how much they don't like this other person, how, and how just terrible they are, whatnot. Um, and at times you can, you can invite the person, okay, well, right now you're identified with this sort of person who doesn't like this other part and and but what about this other part um what if you let go of that identity and just sort of move over and and and, and take your seat assume the seat where you're connecting up with the part of yourself that you were previously disowning and speak from that viewpoint from within that context within that realm or something and um and people they just if they can get beyond their initial self-consciousness about the whole thing, um, they, they, and if they do it, I mean, it's kind of amazing. First of all, it becomes psychologically real. I mean, they are inhabiting a part of themselves that their typical ego identity is, is all designed to keep a distance from. And, and they can participate in some kind of a dialogue, some kind of a back and forth, where, I mean, and if, and if you continue with that, you realize that there is a kind of a, they share the same language. I mean, ultimately, their, their, mo- their motives are not fundamentally different, right? And so they begin to recognize a kind of a humanity in the other. They begin to, uh, to make some kind of peace with one another, I mean, they're still they're still separate, but what begins to happen is, and and Jung talks about this. Jung talks about you know as the attitude of say the ego consciousness, uh, the attitude that the ego has toward the disowned part of self, which 
he might call shadow, for example, will 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 be will affect in a in a big way how the shadow, how this alternate uh, personality treats oneself, and and you find that a person who is so put out with themselves for always making a mess of things and just when they're just feeling it's so at odds with themselves and so at war with themselves, if they can begin to connect up with the part of themselves they're at war with, um, there, there's the beginning of some kind of understanding and there's the beginning of, of some kind, something closer to respect across that division. And so the, the alienated part, the shadow doesn't need to go to such extreme lengths to, to, to drive the, the ego, the, the patient, my patient or client, you know, to drive them crazy. So they're, they're, they're beginning to get more and more on the same page with one another internally. So, I mean, that would be like the, the early, uh, the early, I mean, that would be the first step in something that I could say could culminate in like becoming whole. Um, and the world, human civilization, in the same way, needs to become whole. The only chance we have is to realize the truth, which is that there is one, um, there's one human, what's my word for it? There's, there, there's, um, there's one human family, and it includes all humans. It even includes other species. It includes the, the larger environment because it, we're we're all interconnected. We don't have the luxury. I'm just curious because we don't have the luxury. And getting back to your point before, I agree with that fully. The thing is, I mean, it seems like, and to me and, and a lot of other folks that uh, are spectating, right, that are commenting on the situation, have the sense that, in fact, we're actually becoming increasingly polarized as a society. And while it's true, the answer, the resolution likely, or ha- not likely, has to be um, our appreciation of interconnectedness. Um, what's your view on, on 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 where things are going? And and I mean, it feels as if that that seems a little idealistic in this current moment. And, uh, you know, the general sense, I think, the consensus seems to be that we're becoming increasingly polarized. Um, and this could just be, you know, my sphere of people that I'm kind of talking to on a daily basis, but it's also my view. Um, and I do agree with the view that we need to um, uh, be open to interconnectedness and really be aware of it and to live in it and to, to live in that way and to really kind of um, you know, walk the walk. But what do you say to folks that say, well, that's nice and great and good in, in an idealistic society, but that's not where we are today? I mean, um, I would I would agree. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, and, and the thing is, I'm, I'm not being idealistic. I'm not saying that we'll we'll pull it off. Right. Um, I'm just saying if we don't pull it off, uh, we may not make it. And. And you can just sort of you can sort of make a list of all the ways in which uh, human civilization could 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 end. I mean, if not wiping out a species, at least um, flattening out all the kind of progress that civilization has genuinely made to get where we are. I mean, where you know you go post-apocalyptic. I mean, I think. Um, I mean. Never before have we been able to stare in the, in the face of so many different practical, I mean, uh, strong possibilities, if not probabilities, of, of, of problematic fates like, you know, climate change that could, that could really do us, do us in. And, and the sad thing about it is that it's very, very hard for people to learn anything except the hard way, Right. And so the question is whether we can survive the experience of the hard way to be able to learn what we need to from it. Um, 
because I mean, if we stay on the the, the current track, it's going to get worse and worse, and we're going to be suffering uh, the consequences of that. And and I I don't know that there's a guarantee that there'll be enough of it's left to to sort of uh, you know wake up and smell the coffee and get real. Um, I mean, maybe in eons, maybe humanity will. I mean, what the heck do I know? Uh, but I, but I, I, I do know. I think everybody is real. I mean, that's another thing that's going on. That's that's sort of different from every age. The the rate of social change has grown so steep. I mean, you imagine. I mean, you realize that our ancestors could have lived in societies that wouldn't change one iota for. A thousand years, right? I mean, and talk. I mean, and and so you've got traditions that would sort of that one could relate to, generation to generation to generation. Now, I mean, you. It's hard to even imagine what our own lives are going to be like. Even I mean, five years from now, even three years. I mean, ten years from now, it's just sort of unimaginable. Uh, I think it's 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 really hard. I, I suspect that there's a lot of unconscious anxiety around the future of of the the species that's sort of you know that's woven into this unraveling. But I but I think the way it's playing out is still largely in in just you know feeding our denial. So it's um, it's a really challenging time. Um, but the I mean, the flip side of it is it may it may take things getting really bad to get the wake up call for things to to begin to I mean for us to again to sort of wake up and 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 sort of work on putting aside our difference and differences and dealing with the you know these practical problems that everybody across the globe is 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 sharing pretty much um, the same um, so. The fact that it's getting really bad right now is is not utterly. I mean, it does it doesn't need to be all doom and gloom if, in fact, it it sort of will be part of a process whereby it, we can be suddenly, you know, if we can if we can wake up out of it. Um, but Lord, we have we have so much work to do, um, and it. And it does begin with individuals. Um, I mean, I mean, imagine. Just let me. I'll just close on this, or just one one last point. Uh, we think about all the energy over these last uh, few decades that's gone into this sort of people suddenly caring, wanting to take care of their bodies and go to the gym. And I'm I'm not one of those people, uh, <laughs> but most others are. Um, and the kind of dedication that people can get, you know, have to getting to the gym X number of times a day and sort of staying trim and whatnot. I mean, imagine what it would be like if we put that kind of energy into our own, like, psychological, our own um, our states of consciousness, um, where we start really looking at ourselves and, and, and just, you know, putting a mirror up and seeing, you know what we're doing and what we're not doing. And, and I just think it's, um, it's within our reach. I mean, this is, and this gets back to the beginning. This gets back to, to Buddhism and it gets back to Gestalt psychology. Um, both Buddhism and Gestalt recognize that we are capable of, of, be, of waking up, of knowing reality. Of, of of outgrowing our blindness and our narrow-mindedness and and I mean it's within us but it it, it doesn't it doesn't happen accidentally it 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 takes work to, to grow the consciousness to outgrow this sort of sleepy reactive absolutizing blindness and and just to realize the you know the 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 uh, the the alternative to that is this sort of this relational determination, and it just it means sort of, um, 
I mean, among other things, just experiencing just the, the, the radical interconnectedness of us all. So, I mean, there's more to be said, but that's one way of uh, putting some closure on it. Uh, to open it back up a bit, what do you say to the person who either is doing the work or has done the work of raising their consciousness, of being aware of their own tendencies to absolutize and um, you know, really, really understanding kind of how to uh, divest themselves from those views. But in the current climate, they are the recipient of, of, uh, abs- of folks who are engaging in active absolutizing. What do you say to the person who is dejected or feels um, you know, down about the fact that here I am doing this work on myself and I'm trying to really be aware of my own level of consciousness and it feels like everywhere I look, um, I am getting, you know, absolutism is being projected onto me by others. How do you, how does somebody feel empowered to, or, or A, is it possible to feel empowered to affect change and maybe help folks along the way that, you know, people that who, who tangentially or even directly they're experiencing um, the repercussions of absolutism from, or if not that, then how does somebody just simply stay afloat, stay healthy and stay well while they're continuing to work on their consciousness in a climate where they feel like they're drowning because there's so much absolutization happening around them? Asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it, 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 can be, it can be pretty darn easy when, oh, you're, you know, your heart is open and you're doing the right thing and you can feel kind of good about yourself. And then somebody comes along who's just being a complete jerk. And um, Lord, it is, I mean, it's so easy just to sort of shed all that sort of, you know, goodness when somebody, when somebody is, is messing with you and, and it will feel as though they are doing wrong and um, and they really deserve to be punished. So I'm, you know, I am entitled to to judge them. I'm entitled to uh, to scorn them. I'm, I mean, that's that's absolutism. So we've we've um, we've taken the bait, and and we've gone into this sort of reactive state. You know, there's, I mean, it's actually. I didn't read much philosophy, but I think it was in um, in uh, Plato's Republic, and I think it was the Apology, which is the last chapter where Socrates, um, he's been tried, and he's been sentenced to have to drink the hemlock, and um, and he's, he's, he's having to make peace with that. And among other things, he makes peace with, he says, you know, I, and I don't want to I don't want to botch uh, Socrates, but I, and I may, I may garble some of this, but he, he says a couple of things. First of all, he, for some reason, he, he says, you know, my fellows, they're entitled to do this to me. Um, I won't get into that, but I, but I'll, uh, he, he also said they can't hurt me. Um, I guess, you know, I read that very early in my life, and it's hard to know exactly what it means, because, I mean, they're causing his death, but, and he's fully cognizant of that, but he's at the same time, he's aware, even if he dies, there's just, there's just something there that is, that is, that is untouched by their villainy, their blindness, their cruelty, Um, and I don't, I, I don't know how, how much more I can unpack that, but I think that's the kind of situation we are in right now, where we need to be taking care of our side of the street, and we can't use other people's failures to take care of their side of the street, even if it impacts what's going on on our side of the street, as a justification for, I mean, we may feel furious with them, we may want to wring their necks, but we're not morally entitled to go after them, to judge them. I mean, um, the challenge is to be able to keep one's heart open, regardless of what this other person is doing or not doing. And that's kind of what Buddhism is about. 
um, is, is developing a level of consciousness, a state of awakeness where there's an understanding that, that ultimately I cannot be hurt by somebody else's badness or blindness or whatever. So I guess that's how I would, I would try to answer that. Yeah. Well, my, one of my favorite teacher, Ram Dass has a saying that the, the goal is to keep one's heart open in hell. And, um, I, I think that's an example of it. Uh, one of the things that I am also hearing, so that's one reaction and, and, and that's the, I think that to me, it, I, I, um, intuit that to be sort of the most evolved way to react or the most, the way that would allow me to be in touch with my true essence. My true self is to, to act in this way. Now, another way of reacting that I'm hearing from a lot of folks these days and seems to be pretty popular is the desire to want to retreat, the desire to want to essentially isolate from all of the effects of polarization or all the effects of people who are out there projecting their absolutization and so they're saying things like, I want to just get a house and move to the mountains, or, you know, I want to move to a different country where this isn't happening and that sort of thing. Um, is that in your view, are there, and obviously it's, you know, it's very, very individualized, but the notion of somebody wanting to have a reprieve from the conditions that, that are oppressing them or, you know, that, Oppression might not be the right word, but that they feel that they're have they're encountering while they're attempting to develop themselves and and to uh, regain their consciousness or to increase their consciousness. Is there value, do you think, in in people taking time away from society or time away from the conditions that might be uh, acting upon them, or do you look at that as counterproductive or sort of you know in, in terms of of um, raising one's consciousness is that do you view that as somebody essentially just trying to kick, kick the can down the road and, and not, um, you know, there, there won't be much value derived from a, a sort of a retreat action. Um, I just don't think there's a, a categorical answer to right. that. And, and, and there's certainly, I'm in no position to, um, to suggest to people what they should be doing or not doing in a particular situation. I mean, the, the re, I mean, it all comes back to reality. You bring yourself with you wherever you go. And in a way you're bringing the world with you wherever you go. And I mean, and just my, my sensibility is I just want to be as awake and, and present and sort of, you know, connected to reality as I can possibly be, um, whether I'm in proximity with other people or, or not. And um, so there was something else I was going to say, but it, it went away. Um, I, yeah, that's just, that, that has to be the person's own call, I, I think. Um, if a person is running, if, if a person doesn't want to be present in their own lives, it might behoove them for them to ask themselves, what are they running from? Um, because, I mean, the longer one spends trying to, I mean, if, if, one is, if, if one is getting away from the world and going to some mountaintop or something in order to get away in, in some sense from oneself, then oneself is going to catch up with them regardless. And so there's no escape there. But if a person recognizes that they're running, it's really good to, to, to at some point ask yourself, well, what the hell am I running from? I mean, it's an extraordinary thing about fear. I mean, everybody lives with probably basal levels of fear and whatnot. Uh, but we, we're not always quite so sure what exactly we're afraid of. And it's the nature of fear to, to sort of hide its tracks, to, to sort of hide its operation. Because sometimes even to sort of recognize, oh, I'm afraid of so-and-so, to have that recognition can spike the fear. But Lord, if we're not 
working to get in touch with what we're running from, then we're going to stay on the run and we'll never know. I mean, our lives are out of control. I mean, we're just running around chasing our tails or trying to escape our tails, I suppose. So, I mean, maybe that's what a person is going to do until they, you know, until it stops working for them. Uh, as you know, Ed, I mean, thanks so much, obviously, for coming on. It was, this is something that I've been thinking about doing for years. And so to actually uh, execute on it and have the first episode and you being willing to be a part of it, and you were such a part of my my development and uh, you've done so much for me, I really just genuinely appreciate it. And uh, I think a lot of people out there are going to get a lot of value from from our discussion today. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's been, um, I'm, it's been a real joy. I would say from the very beginning to, to, uh, uh, to have had you in my life and in the way that I have. And, um, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you, uh, gave me the, the honor of, uh, of being included in this, this wonderful, um, project. And hopefully, who knows, hopefully it won't be the last time. There's many more episodes down the road to come and uh, we can continue. I think we can probably talk for hours on a variety of these topics and maybe we can give some context to a lot of the topics that we had to sort of move through today. So thanks again. appreciate it. And uh, for those who are listening, you can, again, you can find uh, Ed's works and uh, more about Ed. You can find out at integrationcenter.com. And we will be providing that link in the show notes, whether you're viewing this on YouTube or whether you're hearing it on iTunes or another platform, uh, you will find the link there in the show notes. Thank you very much. Take care.